Book Dreams, a member of the Podglomerate Network and LitHub Radio. Hello, and welcome to Book Dreams, the podcast for everyone who loves books and misses English class. I'm Julie Sternberg, and I'm a children's book author. And I'm Eve Yohalem. I'm also a children's book author. In each episode of this podcast, we consider a book-related topic. And in this episode, we consider what happens when an author takes a genre that's considered a bedrock of American culture, in this case, the Western, and turns it on its head. Our guest today, Tom Lin, has written a Western set in the 1860s and told through the eyes of a Chinese-American gunslinger assassin who's on a quest to rescue his kidnapped wife and exact his revenge on her abductors. Tom is only 25 years old. This book, The Thousand Crimes of Ming Su, is his debut. My memory, Eve, is that you read a piece about Tom in the New York Times and said... In essence, you know, this book sounds fascinating and the author is so young. Shall we see if he's interested in, in an interview? And I said, yes, please. Well, I'd been on something of a Western kick when I saw that piece. I'd never read or watched any Westerns until you and I did an episode with bibliotherapist Ella Bear Two back in April 2020, and she recommended Shane. And then this summer, I finally watched my dad's favorite movie with him, which is, of course, The Magnificent Seven. So I kind of had Westerns on the brain when I saw that article. And then we had such an interesting conversation with Tom about his book, which has received extraordinary praise. Jonathan Lethem called it, quote, a superb novel that declares the arrival of an astonishing new voice. And then he likened it to True Grit and the Westerns of Cormac McCarthy. Grace Lichtenstein in BookPage deemed it a major work that enlarges our view of the Wild West. And Marlon James said it saves the Western by blowing it to bits. We started by asking Tom why he thought the Western has such long-lasting appeal as a genre generally, and why he chose it for his book. Here's what he said. I think the Western is, at, at its core, it's the story that we tell ourselves as Americans for not only how we came to occupy this entire continent and somehow you know, erase all of the indigenous history that was here before, but also to make that a normative case. I think the Western is mythological in the sense that it provides for us a justification of why we ought to have made it to the Pacific coast and really kind of um, generated this structure of American society throughout this entire landscape. And so I think for those reasons, it's especially powerful genre but it's also got all this baggage, you know, it's, it's got all these kind of connotations of violence and colonialism and, um, and genocide that are pretty tricky to work around if you're playing it straight. I think it's more readily subverted because it has such a kind of strong sense of what it ought to be. Mm-hmm. And I think the other thing is, it is, I, I think, the most American genre to the point where I've actually been hearing that um, people don't really like reading Westerns outside of America. And I guess for good reason, because it kind of, it stops really making sense once you take it outside of the context of this country specifically, which is this idea of uh, an untamed border that needs to be dominated by violence and by capital. And to have that kind of be moralistic and righteous, even. Mm-hmm. Working in that register and, and playing around with it and putting Ming Su instead of just another straight white male in the leading role, I think it's, it's a fun because the other thing is that the Western genres, it's just fun <laughs> um, <laughs> and you can't really get around it. Like it's just action packed. It, I think Jane Tompkins, this critic of Westerns, um, she puts it 
that the Western celebrates the totally saturated moment, which is, you know, the sensation of being fully alive and operating at full capacity, simply being present in the moment. And I think that's something that is worth celebrating. Um, And I think operating in the Western genre kind of gives me the ability to play with those old, old notions of, you know, what makes an American while also putting someone front and center that I can relate to. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So in his Wall Street Journal review of your book, Marlon James says that it saves the Western by blowing it to bits. Do you agree with that? I love Marlon James, and no, I am too. so I was so floored and honored when um, when I found out that it was him on the Wall Street Journal that had said that the Western is it has a structure. It wants to be a certain kind of thing. Blowing it to bits is a very charitable and, and articulate way of putting it. In my mind, I think I, I had it down as just messing with it um, because it has such a rigid structure. Because the Western, the classical Western, has such a received notion of what it ought to do and what it, um, how it ought to behave and, and kind of think about the world, it becomes very easy to exploit it because the whole thing is so fragile. Um, all of these parts interrelate and interlock in a way that um, disturbing even one fragment of the Western story causes these perturbations that kind of spread out and change the whole character of the story. Um, not following the rules of the Western insofar as the demands on race and cultural character. But I think it is still a Western <laughs> The other thing that struck me reading it was my sense of Westerns is that they, while they're enduring, they had their heyday a couple of generations ago. I I think of them as the books and movies my dad loved, and my dad is in his 80s. And I'm curious, what interested you about Westerns as a younger person? And what do you think you brought to the genre by virtue of your age? The Western is interesting because, uh, you know, some some parts of it are, are now almost 150 years old, and yet we still return to it. And not only that, but we have this kind of entire cultural apparatus designed for the perpetuation of a certain Western mythology, you know, especially in, uh, you know, to certain states like Texas or Montana, um, where there are even like whole towns, micro economies that draw from perpetuating a, a Western legend. Mm-hmm. I think they did have their heyday uh, in the past, certainly not now. But I think it's important for Americans that we remember this genre, I think. I think it has a, a, a near and dear place to our consciousness of ourselves. I, I grew up in New York, and I didn't come to California for real until uh, college. Actually, I, I have been saying that I never came to the West until I went to college. That um, was later disproven by my mom. <laughs> who uh, called me quite quite upset and said, you know, don't you remember that we took you on a trip when you were four? Um, and the yeah. answer, I guess, is no. <laughs> I came to the West Coast properly, I guess, when I came here for college. And that was also the same time that I got a car and was also unsupervised. So I broke a lot of speed limits in the West for many years and kind of drank in this landscape. That's the cool thing about the Western is it's still there, the land, you know, and the geology and, and the history of it. You can always get back to the stuff that was there 150 years ago quite easily. All you have to do is take a wrong turn on the 80 in some places, and and you can find yourself in a Western that's quite similar to how it was 150 years ago. Mm -hmm. Coming to it from my perspective of of not kind of knowing that long history experientially, but kind of seeing it and the traces of that, it feels more like history. It feels more like recreation rather than remembrance. Mm -hmm. That is something that... um, I got really into the research for the book, I think was 
some of the most fun I've ever had. Just kind of going around and trying to, you know, consensually hallucinate what it was like to be alive 150 years ago by reading all these sources and working myself into this kind of out of time delirium. Were there particular tenets of the genre that you wanted to stick to pretty steadfastly? And, and if so, which ones were they and why? The thing that struck me about Westerns is their glorification of violence and the way that they code violence as being not only a necessity, but almost a necessary and sufficient condition for a Western, that a Western has to be violent. And oftentimes that violence is, is delivered you know, totally straight, where violence as redemption is seen as not only a possibility, but something that people ought to strive for. And I think preserving that violence in, in The Thousand Crimes of Ming Su, but also kind of passing it through this lens of, you know, wh- wh- what does violence mean when it no longer is violence done by white settlers on indigenous and, and people of color, but rather when that arrow is kind of turned around? Does violence have the same character and feel? And the other thing that I thought was interesting was the fascination of the Western with landscape. And that's certainly something that I... Um, really, really wanted to stick to. Because I think a really important part of the Western is establishing senses of scale between the activity of humans and the activity of the earth. The Western makes you aware of things that are far larger than any single person can comprehend. Um, you know, what is it like to be some to be in a place that was carved by a process that exceeds your lifespan by, you know, a thousand or ten thousand? Mm-hmm. What is it like to be in a million year old lake bed? I love what Tom says about the significance of the landscape. He does such a good job of weaving it into the book, and he conveys so well the formative role that it plays in virtually every aspect of the lives of the people who lived in these Western states at the time. I wonder, too, whether the scope of the landscape, both in terms of its size and its evident age, you know, as as Tom says, the million-year-old lake bed, I wonder whether that makes human life seem more meaningless, which maybe contributed to the murderous quality at the heart of the Western. You know, like a, we don't mean much anyway, so let's kill everybody kind of attitude. What do you think? Well, I certainly think Tom might agree with that idea, but call me a cynic. I suspect traditional Westerns have a lot of violence and killing in them because the largely male audiences think it's cool. There's always that. You know, it's yeah. the same thing with the same way there's often a disregard for human life in mob stories and superhero stories, which don't have vast and ancient settings. Actually, if anything, I think these kinds of stories suggest that the hero's life matters more than anything or anyone in the whole world. You know, the rest of humanity is inconsequential not because of each person's smallness in the universe, but because of each person's smallness next to the hero. You know, we could go really deep here because- Yeah, we totally could. <laughs> we totally could. You know, I, I think part of it is actually the quote unquote heroes striving to feel meaningful, taking everyone else's life to sort of show actually my life matters. But I, I think it's all, it, it's all true. Right? Like, okay. <laughs> the mostly male audience right, does have, have kind of thinks it's cool to have all this killing. And I also think maybe there's something about 
a fear of death or a feeling of meaningless that leads people to kind of fight against it in some way. I don't know, by by killing other people. (laughs) I think that this is fascinating and we could talk about it for the entirety of the episode. So I will say that regardless of the effect of the landscape, Ming in Tom's book has ample reason to kill. And as he travels around the West seeking to settle these old scores, he falls in with a traveling troupe of magic show performers, some with supernatural powers. Hours. He also partners with a blind clairvoyant whom he calls the prophet. We asked Tom why he chose to include these more magical elements in the story, and here's what he said. I travel through that landscape for research and, and also just for enjoyment. And the thing that always struck me was what an insane magical alien place. You look at some of these vistas or you know, these geologies and you and you think, this is not a place of man. This is not a place for me. This is for something else, something far larger. And I think putting in magic into the book was my way of reproducing that feeling of of saying that this is a landscape where real magic is possible. And I think the other thing is because the rest of the book is so, you know, intensely grounded in historical fact, you know, down to like the process that Ming has for reloading his guns, for instance, I think it lends the magic in the novel that same kind of cast of, of potential history. Um, like maybe this is something that could have happened. And I think the other thing that was interesting is by having them in this magic show and under the control of of the ringmaster and, and by having the prophet not be able to remember his past, I think one thing that I wanted to explore was this, the way that um, these people are all, you know, they have genuine world-changing supernatural abilities, but they become digested through this framework of a show, of a spectacle, of, as entertainment. And by doing so, their powers are rendered safe for the rest of society. You know, they, they're, they're no longer a danger because now they're entertainment. And I think that is a tension that I wanted to explore is the, the way that a racist society deals with threats to its supremacist structure by conversion into spectacle. Yeah. There's one scene in the book where the troupe is performing before a crowd of Chinese workers rather than its usual white audience. And in this particular moment, in front of the Chinese crowd, the supernatural powers of the performers stop working. Why? I'm so happy that you brought that up. That (laughs) chapter, I think, went through the most revisions. I think one thing that I wanted to establish was this question of whether or not uh, your identity is something that you, you yourself have, that you kind of put outwards on the world, or whether or not a personality or an identity is something that is constructed out of everyone else looking at you. Could you have a personality in a vacuum, I guess, is the question. And, you know, for Proteus, the shapeshifter, he actually has trouble shifting into um, the Chinese audience member that comes up as part of the act. And I wanted to suggest that perhaps it was because of the instability of Chinese workers in society, um, that they were all kind of collapsed and reduced to this single character, this caricature, John Chinaman. Mm -hmm. And to have that kind of be really literally enacted through Proteus's inability to kind of um, mirror and reflect one individual Chinese person. I'd love to talk about the prophet a little bit. You describe him this way. You say, here was a man unburdened by memory, a man for whom the unspun threads of the future were as bright and clear as the past was vague and frayed. Why can't the prophet see the happenings of the past as well as the future? And do you think, is there something about the weight of memory that prevents us from seeing the future? 
Yeah, I mean, I think there's this interesting theory, actually, of personal identity that John Locke has, where he says, it's the memory theory of identity, where he says, your identity is simply the sum total of what you can remember. I'm in trouble. (laughs) (laughs) That's what I thought, too, because I think I, I... you know that feature on your phone where it says like, oh, on this day three years ago or something, and it tells you if, every time it's like seeing a photo that a stranger took. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I feel like I, I moved through this this kind of shifting three to four month window of my past that kind of drops off a cliff after that time. And so I've always been kind of unsettled by this Lockean theory of memory of like, if you can't remember anything, are you even a person? Mm-hmm. And so I think for me, writing the character of the prophet was a way of thinking through that question of, is, you know, is it possible to have a personality? Is it possible to, is there a way to have such a thing as an identity, as a personality, if your past is unaccessible to you? Mm-hmm. And I think the answer is yes. Um, it becomes more of an effort. And I think by inverting that question of, you know, past and future and giving the prophet access to the full future and specifically the dates of everyone's death um, and no access to his past, I think, allows the prophet to exist free of his history. It actually opens him up to do more. For the prophet, especially, memory is something that would have held him back. You know, and he has scars on his body as well. Um, he has all of these bodily remembered visceral traumas his brain can't access, and so they don't bother him. And that's also been something that I've always found almost intoxicatingly alluring, this idea that if you could simply forget your traumas, that they would cease to trouble you. Mm-hmm. And of course, you know, I think that's a little harder in practice, but that is, I think, one of the great um, mysteries, whether or not memory is something that um, helps you or hinders you. Mm-hmm. And I think the other thing is this idea that when every time you access a memory, you're not actually recalling, but you're recreating. Your mind is kind of putting back together the circumstances and regenerating this memory, you know, for your viewing pleasure. And there are even people who suggest that uh, the more you remember something, the more it becomes removed from, I guess, factual reality of that memory. It raises the unsettling possibility that our most cherished memories that bring us you know, the greatest comfort and the darkest nights are actually the, the falsest, that they have been so modified by recollection that they're no longer true. Mm-hmm. And that possibility, of course, is, is horrifying because then it means that we've been comforting ourselves with little narratives, little false stories, little fictions. Yeah. Now, you mentioned your two and a half years researching the book. What are some of the things you did or learned during that process? I was looking at all these primary sources, and you kind of have to marvel at the way that even like journalism and, and like record keeping is deformed by racism. I'm trying to find, you know, records of, I'm trying to find individual stories of railroad workers or of, um, Chinese immigrants, and they're so hard to find because no one is taking them down. Mm -hmm. And any records that they're keeping of their own are either ephemeral or lost or destroyed. And this was the case when I was doing my research, I think in 2017, 2018. Um, Now, of course, there are books that I wish I could have had while I was doing my research, Ghost of Gold Mountain uh, by Gordon Chang. That's a great one. But a lot of the historical research for me ended up being kind of almost reconstruction, uh, a way of imagining what narratives could have existed in this space that was defined by um, negations. They didn't take down the names of the laborers. They didn't really care who any individuals were. And so in that space of negation, trying to 
you know, imagine what kind of stories could have taken place, I think was my primary mode of bringing myself into that time. Were there things that you did to trigger those imaginings? I tried to go to as many places as I could and kind of walk around and, you know, feel cold or feel hot. The 80, the interstate, runs pretty much right alongside the Transcontinental Railroad, um, at least through most of Nevada and Utah. I drove east to west along the 80 a bunch of times and kind of stopped at different places and took pictures and took notes. I even camped at a few places. Um, The thing that was important to me was kind of getting a sense of what it was like to be there, the visceral experience of the time. Mm -hmm. And lucky for me, a lot of those natural features are pretty much pristine (laughs) from where they were. Now, it it sounds to me, correct me if I'm wrong, like maybe you started the book started while you were still at college. Is that true? Or did it start after you graduated? Yeah. So I had written something for a workshop class in sophomore year that um, featured a character named Ming Su, and it was set in California. And those are the only two things that are similar between the book and that story. The kernel of that idea, which is what if we had a Western, but the protagonist was Chinese American. I think that was what um, stuck with me. And I eventually developed into this book. And work really began in earnest after college. I moved out to Davis shortly before I started uh, my grad program. And I thought to myself, if I don't finish this book now, it will never be finished. Mm -hmm. By then, I had so much research and so much planning and so many outlines that it was kind of almost mechanical. I just kind of went through chapter by chapter and looked at my notes, looked at my outline, and then just wrote the chapter. I wrote probably two thirds of the book that way in about a month and a half. Wow. A month and a half. That's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> we, maybe we shouldn't pub, pub, put that out. No, we're not going to put that on there. <laughs> too many writers will kind of die a little bit when they hear that. <laughs> too many of my family members will be like, what the fuck are you doing? <laughs> totally. Um, so you have encouraged writers who are just getting started to read as much as they can and write as much as they can. Are there certain books or authors that have particularly influenced you as a writer or any books that you find yourself returning to time and again? Yeah, absolutely. I really like um, John Steinbeck's work. I think his ability to capture the sense of a place is totally unparalleled. East of Eden is one of my favorite books. Not least because it has this Chinese character in it, um, Mr. Lee, who shows up and he's speaking in this kind of like extravagant pigeon that John Steinbeck <laughs> writes out phonetically. And I remember reading it. I think I was in high school and I was just thinking, you know, like, don't do this to me, John. <laughs> I like your work so much. Don't make me read. And I think it comes up like halfway through the book and it's like an 800 page book. And you're like, don't make me read so much more of this incredibly racist character. But Mr. Lee ends up. Uh, John Steinbeck has Mr. Lee say, I guess, that he speaks in pigeon because people wouldn't, they refuse to understand him otherwise. And so he actually ends up speaking in regular English for the rest of the book. And he becomes actually the philosophical and intellectual center of the entire story. Growing up and even through high school, I didn't read much outside what I was assigned or what I thought was the canon. And so that was actually the first time that I actually ever read a Chinese character who wasn't immediately so, so racist. And I just remember feeling gratitude for that.
I feel like I have to go now and reread East of Eden. It's coming up everywhere for some reason for me lately, and I loved it when I read it, but it was so long ago. I have a recollection of Mr. Lee, but like everything else about the book, it's very vague. Do you remember him? I read East of Eden in high school, so no, I do not remember him. (laughs) And what I also don't remember is ever hearing you drop the F-bomb before on book dreams. I know, I know. I really am sorry if that offended anyone. It's just that I am the world's slowest writer, and I get a little worked up when I hear how fast it's possible to be. Don't be sorry. It's a book dreams milestone. I feel like you've (laughs) opened the door to vast new territories of programming for us. (laughs) I think then we might have to change our Apple rating. But anyway, thank you. (laughs) And I think that is it for this episode of the Book Dreams podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Please subscribe if you haven't already. And if you like the podcast and think someone else would too, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast player. As always, you can reach us at contact at bookdreamspodcast.com. We're also on Twitter and Instagram. You can find Tom at www.twotreeforest.com. Many thanks to our producer, Gianfranco Lentini, and to our theme music composer, Maya Polsky. You can find Eve at eveyohallam.com and me at juliesternberg.com. And check out the podcast website, www.bookdreamspodcast.com. Until next time, happy book dreaming. Happy book dreaming. Love. Come listen to Book Dreams with Julia.